There is a saying in sports, the next man up. And what that means is that sometimes somebody gets injured or maybe they get traded if it's professional sports or they just, they retire or whatever. They can't play anymore. And so their replacement has to come in. The second string, whoever is the next man up has to come in and fulfill their, their place. And, and sometimes that works. Sometimes it, it goes well. In, in September 23rd of, of 2001, the New England Patriots, that's a professional football team, they were playing the, the New York Jets, and it was getting close to playoff time, and their star quarterback was a guy named Drew Bledsoe, and he ran along the sidelines and got hit by a linebacker, and it gave him a concussion. He went out, so the next man up had to come in. His name was Tom Brady, and he was a no-name from Michigan at the time who had never really done much in the NFL, and it worked out for the Patriots. He went on to be one of the best, if not the best, quarterback to ever play. They won a bunch of Super Bowls, but they still haven't reached the same amount as the Steelers, just in case you didn't know about that. <laughs> then there's also a guy by the name of LeBron James. He played for a basketball team that was not far from where I grew up, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Took them to four straight NBA Finals, won one of them. They were one of the best teams in the National Basketball Association. He now plays for the Lakers. The next man up to replace him hasn't fared quite so well. I don't even know who it is that replaced him, but the Cleveland Cavaliers, well, they didn't have Tom Brady waiting in the wings. The next man up, sometimes good, sometimes bad. But in our own spiritual lives, in the way we we live, that, that same process has to take place. In a church whether it's a pastor or a life group leader or a ministry leader or some area of service, that person's not going to be there forever. It can also be in, 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 in your family life. You may have a patriarch or a matriarch, a grandparent, a parent or somebody that has been a, a spiritual rock in your life, the person that you have looked up to that has guided you, but they won't be there forever. And what happens when God transitions that person to someplace else? They could pass away. They could move on to another place, whatever. They could just get older. Lots of different things could happen. But how do we deal with that transition? How do we we go from one to the the other? And and we get to 2 Kings chapter 2. We're going to look at a very uh, timely picture of this. Elijah and Elisha. And you can pray for me this morning as I say those two names a lot together that I don't mess them up. In case somebody taught me this once, if you're trying to remember which one comes first, think of the alphabet, Elijah with the J. J comes before S, so he's first, Elisha is second. I don't know if that helps, but if I mess it up, well, hopefully you follow along. But Elijah, he's about to to go, and he has a very incredible story. He's actually one of only two people in the Bible, Enoch being the other, in Genesis that doesn't die. He just gets taken up. And next week we'll look at the last part in the New Testament where he appears. But this is the end of the road for Elijah. And Elisha, well, he kind of steps on the scene afterwards. The transition happens. And so how do they they deal with this? How do they face this spiritual transition? And it's an important point for us as we look at this, as we look in our churches, in in our, our parachurch or our ministry organizations of the various Ministries within a church, like I said, even in our own just personal lives with, with people in our families, what happens when we go from one to the next? So I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to read not the entirety of chapter 2, but just part of it as we look at the transition from Elijah to Elisha. 
Verse 1 says, Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces, and he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage of Scripture, Lord, that you would speak to us this morning. And know that we can trust in you. In your name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's an interesting passage of scripture. As I read through this, well not just this week, but as I was preparing to preach through this sermon, there's a lot in here that kind of makes you scratch your head a little bit. He keeps traveling from one place to the other, tells Elisha to stake back, he doesn't, he stays with him. But there's, it's not as difficult as you think. Elijah knows his time on earth is, is coming to an end. And so as he's traveling, he goes to these various cities, and you notice that there's prophets there. Well, history teaches us that in each of these towns, these were schools of prophets, where prophets went to learn to be a prophet. We'd like to think that you're just walking along one day, and you, know, you get hit with something, and you're a prophet. But there were schools. There were places where they were taught. And so most people feel Elijah is making his way through, going to these various schools of prophets, and, and kind of talking to them, giving him his final bits of wisdom. And Elisha, who's been with him for a while, goes along with him until we get to the Jordan. But as we look at this transition, there's a few things that we see that kind of come off the page about going from Elijah to Elisha. The first thing that we notice is that they have taken time to prepare for this moment. They have taken time to prepare 
for the moment. What we see in chapter 2 of 2 Kings is really the culmination of something that began way back in chapter 19 of 1 Kings. If you remember that, Elijah was on Mount Carmel. He prays and fire comes down and consumes the, the altar. He kills the prophets of Baal and then he runs to Jezreel after the rainstorm. And if you remember what happened, Jezebel said, hey, I'm going to have you killed. And what did he do? He ran away. When he ran away, he went and hid, and they had this mountaintop experience where God, there's an earthquake and a fire and a wind and a still small voice, and God informs Elijah of a few things that uh, are going to happen. He's going to anoint some new kings. He's got 7,000 people that haven't bowed down to Baal, and what else? I've got a replacement for you, Elijah. And at the end of the chapter, Elijah goes, and, and he throws his cloak on Elisha. Elisha kills his oxen, cooks them, feeds his family, and he's gone. And it says at the very end of chapter 19 that he assisted Elijah. And that's it. We don't really have much between the two of them of how this process took place. But here at chapter 2, it's been several years, and the time has come. Elisha is prepared for this event. He knows it's coming. And it's important that we we prepare. I remember when when Julie and I first had Rogan, our our, our oldest, he was a little itty-bitty baby. And I was typical as guys. I had never really dealt with babies in any capacity ever in my life. And one day she was going to go to the store the next town over, which was like a 25-minute ride where we were at the time. I mean, the towns were a ways off. And she, you know, are you you good to go? I was like, yeah, I got it, no problem. I know what I'm doing. And so I was like, I was going to boil myself a hot dog because I ate healthy back then. And so I got the water going and I throw the hot dog in and everything's fine. She left and all of a sudden I'm like, man, what is that? Oh, so, you know, he had a little itty bitty baby. So I'm like, I take care of this. So I go in to to change his diaper and it it had gone all the way. You know, it's a bad one. And I was like, oh, no, I got to get him into the bathtub, get him cleaned up. So I get the water going in the bathtub and I, I put him in and he wasn't quite finished yet. So there was more that came out in the bathtub. So I pulled him out and put him on a, a, a towel, and he's crying. And then I remembered the hot dogs and, and the smoke alarms going off. And I got noises going everywhere. So I'm running around with, you know, doing all this stuff. And she came home a few minutes later, and it's quiet and peaceful. I'm just eating a hot dog. It's perfect. No problem. You know, I have it under control. But we prepare. Know what you're doing. One of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, especially if we're in ministry, we're, we're in charge of something or we're doing something within the kingdom of God, are we making ourselves obsolete? In other words, are we doing our, our, our ministry in such a way that if we were taken out of the picture, there's somebody else to come along and fulfill that role? Do you ever notice in life we often do the wrong thing? We try and make ourselves indispensable, that if we're not there, it's all going to fall apart. Well, that's not... I have a friend who's done that at his job, and he doesn't ever take a vacation because if he goes, he just gets phone calls and emails and all of those other things. But we should be working in our ministry to find, as Paul did with Timothy, find somebody else to say, all right, I want it so that this this can go on, just like Elijah with Elisha. On the other side of that coin, are we preparing to take over for those that we know eventually aren't going to be there? You look at any particular ministry, whether it's within the church or the parachurch ministries that we're a part of, there's there's step ministries and, and from his throne and all of these other things that we're associated with. The people that are, are, are running these things, they're not going to be there forever. Even our missionaries, young people, are you looking saying, hey, they're not going to be over there forever. Who's going to take their place? 
There's a sense of preparation. Like I said about the prophets, the prophets didn't just walk along and get zapped. All the, They had schools of it. They trained up. And so are we preparing for the inevitable moment when God says, listen, one, this person's going to go. They took time to prepare. And the second thing that we notice here with Elijah and Elisha is do they have the right perspective. Elisha has the right perspective of what's going on. There's this interesting little thing. He shows up at each of these schools of the prophets and the prophets come out to Elisha and they say, do you know that the Lord's going to take away Elijah? And what does he say? Yeah, I know it. Be quiet. Now, what does he mean when he says, be quiet? Well, if you're familiar with the Psalm, be still and know that I am God. Most people have heard that. It's the same Hebrew, be still, be calm. You ever see the shirts, keep calm and whatever on? Calm, peace. Elisha, I think, was also, he was well aware of this moment. He knew it was coming, but you can imagine what was going in through the hearts and the minds of these prophets because Elijah was gonna go. Think of everything that had taken place in Elijah's lifetime. He stood up to the king. He prayed, first of all, and for three and a half years, it didn't rain. That's pretty impressive. It doesn't rain. And then he faces Ahab and Jezebel. Remember what Jezebel had done? She had tried to kill off all of the prophets, had tried to wipe out Jehovah worship. Obadiah, this other prophet, he came along and, and saw Elijah and said, I've hidden 50 of them in caves trying to keep them alive. Elijah had stood up to that and won. He'd killed 450 prophets of Baal. He had faced Ahaziah, the guy right before this here in chapter 1 of 2 Kings. He was the guy that sent, you know, the, the, the groups of 50 after him, the military after him. And Elijah's like, if I'm a man of God, this was that guy. It was Elijah. What are we going to do? Elisha, he's going to go away. Elisha's like, yeah, no, be, be, be okay. Calm down. He has that perspective. And there are moments in our lives where we become so consumed with, this, with people that, are, that God is using that have become instrumental in whatever ministry we're a part of that we think it's going to blow up if this person's not there. This past year, Billy Graham passed away. Billy Graham was one of those, you know, probably the last, what they, they call the, the America's pastor. He preached the gospel to more people than anyone in the history of the world. He had the ear of presidents, actors and actresses, musicians heard from Billy Graham. Presidents, before they went to war, they'd, they'd ask him to come in and pray for them. I remember when I lived in Nashville, he, before he, you know, this was back in the early 2000s, one of his final speaking things was at, I don't know what the stadium was called then, the stadiums changed their names every five years or whatever, but I was at the football stadium where the Titans play, and there he was, and thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And he's gone. And is there anybody kind of like him right now? No, and there's people that get, what, what we, God took away this type of person. And, and it can happen. It's going to happen. I see this most in my ministry as a pastor when I deal with this with, with people that struggle with this is when they lose a family member or somebody that, that, that they're so personally close with that has been a rock in their life, a spiritual mentor. It can be a grandparent, it could be a parent, a spouse sometimes. It is somebody that has been there for so long, they become so dependent, they don't know what to do when that person moves on. And one of the things I will tell you as a pastor, you don't get over losing somebody. That's not, 
you adjust. Because God does, they're not going to be there forever. If you're struggling with that, if you're struggling and just can't seem to get past that, I encourage you, find a pastor, find an elder, find a life group leader. Sometimes you need to get some professional help in which saying, listen, to help you deal with those issues because they can be debilitating. I think there were some of the prophets looking at Elisha going, I don't, we don't know what we're going to do if God removes this person. But Elisha understood it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen. But Elijah isn't the answer. And that's what we see in the third point is that he has the right priority. The right priority. Elijah and Elisha get to the, the River Jordan. And the rest of the prophets, they stay back, I don't know, a little distance. They see him and Elijah smacks the water and it parts. And the two of them walk across on dry land. They get to the other side. They're walking along. And Elijah does something. He asks Elisha a question. He says, listen, before I'm taken from you, is there anything that I can do for you? And Elisha has an interesting answer. He says, yeah, let me have a double portion of your spirit. Now, what does he mean, a double portion of your spirit? To understand this phrase and what he's asking, you have to look a little bit about the relationship these two men have and what's, what's taking place. And you see it a little bit in what Elisha says in verse 12 when Elijah is taken up in a whirlwind. They had a father-son relationship. He even says that, my father, my father, when Elijah's taken up. It's the way that... We see throughout the Bible the relationship between a, a, a number of spiritual people, Paul and Timothy, a father-son relationship. If you have a little insert that I have in the worship guide, I have you read some things where Paul talks about Timothy, you're my spiritual son, I have raised you up, and, and all of those things. And so when Elisha says, I want a double portion of your spirit, and he sees Elijah as his spiritual father, in that day and age, it was almost like an inheritance. The firstborn... Firstborn male child, they would get a double portion of the inheritance. It was their way of saying, listen, I carry on the family name, the family significance. I get a double portion. That's why with Jacob and Esau, it was such a big deal when Jacob took the birthright from Esau. We kind of look at it and go, I mean, whoopity-doo. But in their day and age, it's like, you know, more than just taking somebody else out of the will. It was a big deal. And so Elisha is, is saying, listen, I, I want to be viewed as your spiritual firstborn, a double portion of your spirit. What you had, Elijah, I need to have. And then he says in verse 12, after my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Now, there's always this picture of this event that Elijah gets, you know, like this chariot of fire comes down and he jumps in and he's like, woohoo, and goes up into heaven. That's not it at all. In fact, he got in the chariot of fire. He gets taken up in a whirlwind. The Hebrew, it's, they're separate things. But I think Elisha looks and he talks about the spirit that's on you, Elijah. He looks and he says, the real power is not Elijah, it's, it's God, it's Yahweh. There is an event that takes place a, a little bit later in chapter 6 of 2 Kings that really highlights what goes on here. Elisha in chapter 6 is firmly in control. Or he's firmly the, the ministry leader. He is Elijah now. Elijah has been gone for a while and he has his ministry. And he has angered a king because that's what prophets did then. They angered the king a lot. And so he's in this little town, Dothan. And the king's mad so he's, he surrounds this city. 
The city is surrounded, and, and Elisha, he wakes up, and his servants are there, and they step outside of the house, and the servant looks up, and what does he see all around? He sees horses and chariots. He sees this army, and he's scared. Verse uh, 16, he says, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Sorry, verse 15. And what does Elisha say? He sees the same things, but he says to him, verse 16, don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And I'm sure the servant's kind of scratching his head going, no, they're not. We're in a little itty-bitty town. It doesn't, it, there's not really any fortifications. There's an entire army, horsemen, chariots. We're outnumbered. We're outgunned. Verse 17, Elisha prays and says, oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of what? Fire all around Elisha. What did Elisha see here when Elijah was taken into heaven? The chariots of Israel and its horsemen. But later on, he still sees that. He sees his power is not, it's not Elijah the person It's not that. It's the Spirit of God working through Elijah. It's the the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. It is God working. And it speaks to us in our day and age. What, what, What are we looking to? I think of Solomon when he prayed. Remember King Solomon after David, his father, is gone. And he's now the king and he's a young man. And God says to him, he's the king of this huge nation. What do you want? Pray for it and I'll give it to you. And Solomon, what does he pray for? Wisdom. He doesn't know what he's doing. He says, I need wisdom. Reminds me in James chapter 1 where it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, pray for it. God will give it to you, but don't, don't doubt. Pray with conviction. And I think of what Elisha does here, where his focus is, what his priority is, and I, I can't help but think of our, our, our North American churches, North American Christianity, and we have been consumed with what we have. Consumed with, we have nice buildings, we have the perfect Bible studies, we have all the electronics, we have the technology, we have the money. We have all of those things, yet, is that where our power is? I think of of what Jesus said in, in Revelation. He spoke to seven different churches, and the last one was a church called Laodicea. And as he speaks to this church in Laodicea, he says, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either cold or hot, because you're lukewarm, I spit you out. We've heard that before. But the church at Laodicea, this is how they thought of themselves. For you say, you're rich, you've prospered, you don't need anything. Here was a church that viewed itself, listen, we've, we've, we've arrived. We have money, we have people. We have prestige, we have influence, we are very similar to what the church is in the United States today. We have all of these things, yet what did Jesus say to this church? You don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. When I think of this and I think of what Elisha was focused on right here when he was given this question, asked, what what shall I do for you? I want a double portion of your spirit. 
He doesn't say, I want the influence you have, Elijah. I, don't, I want to be able to pray down fire like you did, Elijah. I want, I want your spirit. It makes me think of my own prayers and what do I ask for? If you're given a blank check, what would you ask for? Now, you think of that when I'm speaking about this, but what if it was a, just out of the blue? What are we seeking? What is our priority? Elisha has the, he's prepared, he has the right perspective, the right priority, and finally has the correct prerogative. I can just picture this scene with Elijah and Elisha. There's this whirlwind, all of the little, you know, flecks of dirt, the little twigs hitting Elisha in the face. He probably can't look for very long. There's this chariot of fire, all of this going on, and then it's gone. Have you ever been out in the countryside on just a peaceful day? All of a sudden, he kind of looks up, and there's no chariot of fire anymore. Elijah's gone. The wind has calmed down. He might even hear the River Jordan just flowing not too far away. And the only thing that's left is the cloak. Remember the cloak? When Elijah came and he threw the cloak over Elisha to signify that was the signification, you're going to follow after me, that's what's there. And it says he tears his clothes because his mentor is gone and he picks up the cloak and he knows what this means. It's now me. And he walks back to the the river Jordan and he wraps it up like Elijah did. And it says he strikes the water and he asks this question. Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And if you remember... Back in verse 7, those prophets that came with him, they had stood back from the Jordan when Elijah and Elisha came to it. They watched as Elijah and Elisha crossed. Now they're watching just Elisha come back. Elijah's gone. And they see he has his cloak, and he smacks the water just like Elijah had done earlier. And he, he announces this. He asks this question, which is kind of a rhetorical question. Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And exactly what had happened for Elijah happens for him. The water parts. Verse 15 indicates how the prophets saw this. When the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him, they said the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. Elisha now realizes he's the guy. It's his time. Elijah is gone. And there are going to be moments in our lives where our Elijahs are gone. Those that have poured into our lives, that have been our spiritual mentors, that have been the rocks of our lives are gone. And then it is time for us to become the servant leaders that Christ made us to be. When we read about Christ in the New Testament, that's what he was, a servant leader. So he spent those years there on earth leading his disciples, training them, teaching them. Then he dies on a cross. He rises from the dead, and he has a few appearances after that. And one of them was to Peter. You remember the story at the end of John. They're walking along the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And Peter is walking with Jesus, and Jesus asks him three separate times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter answers, yes. And each time he answers, you know, Peter gets a little more dejected because he's like, well, I answered the question. That's kind of Peter's nature. And what did Jesus say to him? Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. You see, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. 
Remember what Jesus had told Peter in, in Matthew 16. He said, you're Peter on this rock. I will build my church. Now, Peter doesn't become Christ on earth. He's not that. And we're going to see that in a second. But Jesus' physical presence is going to leave. And Peter is going to be the, the, he's the first guy. Read through the first parts of Acts. He preaches the first few sermons. He's the, the leader. And Jesus says, before he leaves, he prepares him. He looks at Peter. You got the right priority. It's, it's, it's me and Now, Peter, you're a servant leader. Notice he never says, lead my sheep. Jesus is the leader. Jesus is the shepherd. Jesus is the head. He doesn't need Peter to do that, but he does say, feed them, tend them, care for them. Be a servant leader. That's your role. I can't imagine as Peter saw that and then a very brief time later, Jesus, just like Elijah, ascends. And he's there by himself. But he wasn't really by himself. Just as with Elisha, the spirit rested on him. We don't do what we do in our own power. We do it with the power of the Holy Spirit of God. My mother-in-law, before she passed away, painted a little phrase in, the, in her house that said, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. I always like that phrase because it's true. We don't get ourselves all ready and prepared, and then God's, okay, now you're set. God calls us all, and he qualifies us. That's, in essence, what he did with Elisha. He was just a shepherd guy or a farmer who was plowing with the oxen, but he had a willing spirit. And the truth is, Elisha probably accomplishes more than Elijah. Are you being prepared? Are you, as Elisha, taking the time to prepare? Do you have that right perspective? Are you praying for the Holy Spirit of God to work in your life? Do you realize that it is that and not some person, some pastor? This church is well aware that, you know, people come and go. I'm not going anywhere. But are we preparing ourselves? I want you to bow your heads this morning.